Good morning. My name is Sammy Rhodes. I'm the RUF campus minister at South Carolina. And it's my privilege, my joy to get to preach this morning, um, keeping in our First Timothy series. And the passage I want to read this morning is from First Timothy 4, uh, verses 6 to 10. So I'm going to read it for us, and I want to pray, and I want to jump into, dive into what I want to talk about this morning. So first, First Timothy 4, verses 6 through 10. Here's what Paul writes. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us, so you reveal yourself to us. We, we ask this morning that as we, look about, as we look at these words from Paul, as we look at this passage, that you would be gracious to meet us where we are, not where we should be. That you would be gracious to bring the conviction that we need. That you would be gracious to bring the comfort that we need that you would be the one who speaks to us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So in 1929, uh, William Faulkner wrote a book called The Sound and the Fury. And the story is basically about the Compson family in Jefferson, Mississippi, this privileged, rich family who essentially loses everything. And the narrator is actually one of the family members. He's mentally disturbed and is telling the story. And Faulkner took his line from actually from Shakespeare, from a line from Macbeth, where, where Shakespeare wrote this, Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And sometimes if you're like me, maybe life feels a little bit that way. It feels a little bit like, is there a point? Do, sometimes things feel meaningless. Sometimes things feel a little bit, why does this happen? Why does this not happen? And yet our passage, Paul kind of says that if the gospel is true, if Jesus Christ truly has come into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost, Paul writes, if the gospel is true, then this word godliness, godliness matters. It means something. Life means something. The way we respond to Christ means something. The way that we continue to respond to him means something. But if you're like me, that word godliness, that's what we're thinking about this morning, is how, how does, what does Paul say that if we're going to be godly, if we're going to continue to grow in godliness, what do we need? But if you're like me, that word godliness maybe is a little bit hard for you. For me, I think about uh, maybe political emails you get from your parents that are, have like two forwards in the front of them, and then maybe say something that feels a little, a little uncomfortable, maybe you're not exactly sure, the tone's a little off, or maybe the content's a little off. And that word godliness, sometimes it feels either forced or it feels fake. Like my wife and I just had this conversation about this word godliness, and she was like, I feel like I'm just supposed to be a member of the Duggar family and kind of live that way, wear lots of denim skirts. Just do, that's what godliness sometimes feels like. And yet, when we think about it in the context of how Paul means it, that we're ta- what we're talking about is godlikeness. Like we just sang that song where we talk about, in, in your likeness, in the morning, let me wake. Um, there's a sense of, part of what sin is, is we, we do not bear God's image into the world. The way that, and the ways that we re- relate to one another, the ways that we think about one another, we are not like God. And part of what Christ does is he comes to redeem us, but he also comes to restore us into that image where we begin to relate to one another 
and to, re- and to see one another, and even to relate to ourselves and to see ourselves in the way that God does. God-likeness is what we're talking about. And Paul says two things. Two things have to happen if we're ever going to grow in godliness. If our, godliness is ever gonna, if our God-likeness is ever going to grow. Here are the two things he says. On the one hand, sound doctrine. On the other hand, it, it, let's do sound and fury. Sound doctrine. And the other one is the furious love, what Chesterton would call the furious love of a living God. Those are the two things that we have to have. They're indispensable to godliness. So what I want to do this morning is think about those two things. Sound doctrine, the furious love of a living God, and then think about what does it look like when those two begin to be held in tension together. So that's what I want to do this morning. So think with me first about sound doctrine. What does Paul mean by sound doctrine? I think another word for it would be good theology, good teaching. In other words, what we're talking about is we are... If we, to use biblical terms, we are understanding the whole counsel of God's word from Genesis to Revelation, and we're learning to divide it rightly. We're learning to understand. Another way of thinking about it is God loves us so much, he revealed himself, he preserved that revelation for us in Scripture, and what we have in Scripture really, really simmered down, really, really boiled down, is we have God's words, what he says to us, and we have God's ways, what he's like. And what Paul is saying is godliness means we're growing in both of those things. We're growing more and more in taking his words and, and applying them into our lives and knowing them and doing what, Paul, what, what Psalm 119 says about we're, we're keeping them, we're treasuring them in our hearts, and we're learning more and more about God's ways, what he's like, what he does, why he does it. Another way of thinking is why does, God says, why does God say what he says? Why does God do what he does? And part of what sound doctrine does is it, it grows us in a deepen, an ever-deepening understanding of both of those things. The way I like to think about it is I'm pretty into movies, and I saw Fury this past week and Shia LaBeouf, which just feels uncomfortable saying that. Let's, it, took, it took me some practice to say that a couple times. Shia LaBeouf is in the movie. He plays this great, his, his name is Bible in the movie. It's a, he's set in a tank, and he's this kind of evangelical Bible belt kind of guy who quotes scripture all the time. But I was reading about how Shia LaBeouf does his roles, I'm just going to say that word over and over until we all feel uncomfortable enough. <laughs> Where How he does his roles is he does what we call method acting. And what method acting is, is you really, to, to, to research a role, you live as that character, whether you're on set or whether you're offset, you're living in the mindset of that character. In other words, you know, think about what, it, what does it mean to, to try to be like or imitate another person? You're, you're thinking about how do they say things, what do they say? You're also thinking about how do they do things, what do they do? And Paul is saying, this is, an, this is part of what godliness is like, is we're thinking God's thoughts after him, we're treasuring his words in our hearts, we're learning and understanding why he does what he does, what he's like. And we, that's indispensable. We have to have it if we're ever going to be godly. And the metaphor Paul uses is one that maybe some of us relate to, some of us don't. He uses the metaphor of an athlete training for something like a marathon. We have dear friends in Statesboro, Georgia, that just ran their first marathon and it's been fun. They kind of Instagram their process of what it took, like from when they just started running two miles, three miles at a time, to when they upped their game and started running five miles, six miles, ten miles, until they said, well, we're going to do the Rock and Roll Savannah Marathon 26.1 miles. If my running people can tell me afterwards. I'm not a running person per se. I can do about three miles sometimes slowly. <laughs> they need some donuts afterwards and everything is good. But to train, for, so to train for a marathon, though, you're, you're, you're running when you feel like it. You're running when you don't. You're running. You're, you're training. Like, you don't just wake up and run a marathon. Like, you train for it, and, and you put in the work. You buy the clothes. You wear the gear. You, you start living as if you're a marathon runner. Then you go run the marathon. Then you put the sticker on the back of your car. And then the other of us who see that sticker feel shame about ourselves. 
which is probably why you did it. Let's be honest. It's probably why you ran the marathon. To feel a little bit better about those of us who like donuts. Um, and what Paul is saying is, is that's, that's a good thing. It's a good thing to try to, to, to have a goal, a workout goal, and pursue it. But what's better than that, what makes that fail in comparison, is pers- giving yourself to the words and ways of God. Giving yourself to the pursuit of godliness. Giving yourself to an ever-deepening, giving yourself to the study, giving yourself to theology, good theology. Giving yourself to learn and grow to the end, a lifelong pursuit of knowing more and more and more why God says what he says and knowing more and more and more why God does what he does in order that you might know God, in order that you might know more of his character, more of his ways. Now, let me immediately kind of say there's a good way of pursuing theology and there's a bad way of pursuing theology. I mean, it sounds cliche to say all of us are theologians because all of us think about God. So we want to do good theology, but there's a way of doing good theology that feels a little bit uh, jerkish, that feels a little bit unhelpful. There's a way of pursuing theology that makes us bobblehead people where we just sort of, you know, we put tons of stuff into our minds and we learn and learn and learn, but we're sort of doing it because we like the attention of feeling like we're the smart person who understands and knows more than you do. And that was me in seminary. My wife could attest, I remember I went to RTS Charlotte and I... There were two professors that I really wanted their approval, and they had very specific convictions about the Sabbath. They didn't like to eat out on the Sabbath. It was their conviction, and I thought, the way I'm in with them is to take their convictions. I don't really understand it, but let me do what they're doing. And so we leave. We're, we're getting part of this church in Charlotte, and these friends invite us. One of whom was another professor. They invite us to go to Wendy's after church. And we, we need friends. We're lonely. We just moved to Charlotte. And we get back to the car, and I look at my wife, Alyssa, and I say, we are not going to Wendy's today. We are going to honor the Sabbath. And she starts crying. <laughs> True story. She starts crying, and I'm, like, angry. It's usually a good sign you're not doing theology well is when you're angry and making your wife cry. Let me just give you that. Let me give you that tidbit. If you're newly married, you're angry and making your wife cry, you're not doing theology well. Um, and sometimes that's how we think about it, and so we overreact and say, well, we're, just not, we're not going to be that person, we're not going to do it. But there is a way of pursuing it, where a theology that leads to doxology, that leads to a love and a praise, and, a, and really glorying in the glory of who God is. Luther said, bad theology, this is why Luther said it, bad theology is a cruel taskmaster, amen. But we could also say, we have to keep in attention, that good theology is a poor savior, that part of what good theology does, part of what the sound doctrine Paul is talking about, is it, it draws us closer to knowing God. It comes, and, and it comes from God. He's saying one, one of the things that's indispensable to God is a, humbly, a humble giving of ourself life to the lifelong pursuit of studying God, his words, and his ways. But then the second thing he says, so that's the sound doctrine, but then he says he balances it with something that I'm going to call the furious love of a living God. And what he balances it with is in verse 10 when he says, we've set our hope own the living God. And what's fascinating is why does he choose, what I've been thinking about all week is why does he choose that word, that title, the living God? And I think part of what he's doing is he's saying there's a, there's a way of knowing a lot of theology, a lot of sound doctrine, and yet not knowing God. There's a way of knowing a lot of information and yet not drawing near to God. Uh, I think sometimes, the way I've been thinking about in my life is sometimes I think we, we love, those of us who really love theology, Sometimes we're, we, we, we do theology because we're afraid of intimacy with God. Theology can be a way of actually keeping God at bay. If I can know a lot about God, 
If my mind can know a lot, my mouth can talk a good game, my heart doesn't have to draw near to him to actually trust him with the parts of my life that I don't want to trust him with. In other words, we pursue theology sometimes at the cost of intimacy with God. And that's why Paul says, that's not how godliness works. You have to have sound doctrine, but you also have to have the furious love of a living God intimately at work in the intimate details of your life. And that's why he uses that, that interesting phrase, set our hope on the living God. Why are we afraid of it? Why are we afraid of this intimacy? Because we know on the one hand, setting our hope means we have our hope typically in other things. Even if we have lots of, good, lots of good doctrine, we can still put our hope in all kinds of places. That's what the Bible calls idols. We can put our hope in people. We can put our hope, put our hope in things. We can put our hope in places. We can put our hope all kinds of places instead of putting our hope in the living God. And the living God, that idea, part of why we're afraid of, of intimacy too, is we know it means at some level giving up control of our lives. That trusting God means we have to trust him with, with it all. We have to trust him with our futures. We have to trust him with our careers. We have to trust him with everything. And we're afraid of it. Which is why I think if you're looking at verse 10, this is where the passage gets interesting because when Paul says he's the savior of all people, especially of those who believe, what in the world does he mean by that? And we know what he doesn't mean. Like we can put this in the context of the rest of scripture. No, Paul is not saying that we're universalists, that we think at the end everyone is saved because of the work of Christ. Because in Romans, he's very clear that, that there's, that when the, when the gospel is preached, that we need to embrace it or reject it. And there's a, those of us who embrace it, and there are others of us who reject it. So he can't be saying we're universalists, but I think what he is saying in the context of chapter 4, if you look at it, is we're talking about common grace. He's already said in chapter 4 earlier, listen, enjoy the gifts of creation because the gifts of creation are from God. And I think what he's saying here in verse 10 is that word Savior can also mean preserver. And I think he's saying God is, there's such, his grace is so plentiful that he's even intimately at work and involved and cares about the works of everyone, especially believers. And if we think about it like that, here's what we're saying, is that godliness comes from knowing that God is intimately, that he intimately cares about you, that he's intimately involved in the lives of all people, but especially in yours because he's brought you into his family. There's a story that Henry Nouwen, that comes out of his life that I love, where he talks to Henry Nowen, was a Catholic priest, and he, his, in the later years of his life, he taught at Harvard for a while, but in the later years of his life, he actually worked at this home for mentally disabled people, and he would do chapel services. And he was doing this chapel service one day, and he felt moved to stop the service, stop the liturgy of the service, and to actually turn it into, it's going to sound weird, but to turn it into like a, a hug therapy service, which part of me wants to do that so bad right now, but then part of me knows it would be very uncomfortable, and there'd be a lot of side hugging, because we don't do intimacy well. But what he does is he stops the service, and literally one by one people comes up. And the way this works, and you can read about it in spiritual formation, but the way it works is he, he hugs a person and he speaks the love of Christ over them. And so a room full like this, one by one people come, and he, he embraces them, and he speaks the love of Christ over them. And as every last person comes and receives this hug, the hug of God's grace, there's a janitor in the back who's been watching the whole time. And the janitor raises his hand, and he says, me too. And the janitor comes up and now and embraces him and speaks the love of Christ over him. And what Paul is saying is, sound doctrine, absolutely. But that, if you're ever going to grow in godliness, what he's like, you have to know the furious love of a living God in your life. I think about Dobby and Harry Potter. Remember the scene where Dobby, he meets Harry Potter for the first time and he does that thing where he says, Dobby has heard of Harry Potter's greatness but of his goodness, he never knew. There's a way of being a Christian where you know a lot about God's greatness, 
but of his goodness you haven't known. And Paul is saying if you're ever going to grow in godliness, it's both. It's knowing of his greatness, but it's also knowing, and let me say, not just knowing, having an experience of his goodness. The, the, the thing that I kept thinking about this week for me is, I could quote you all day long on Luther's letter to his barber in prayer. I could quote that thing as much as I want to. But I almost, my, what is my prayer life like? There's a way of doing that where I can quote it, but never pray. And we have to, both of those together, sound doctrine and the furious love of a living God. Last thing I want to think about, thirdly, is how those two fit together. Like, what does it look like when we hold both of those intention in our lives? What does it look like when we are growing in our grasp of Scripture and of who God is, and we're also growing in our grasp of, the God, of His love for us, of His grace at work in our lives? And here's what I think. There's an image. I'm going to give you an image and then three applications, and then we're done. The image comes from it's a, a, an illustration that Tim Keller told years ago that's always been really helpful for me. We're getting in the season where we're, we're building fires. Part of what I love about my house is we have a fireplace. In Statesboro, Georgia, we had nothing like that. In Columbia, we've got a little fireplace. We rarely use it, but we use it when we can, when it gets just cold enough. Uh, my wife is way better at building fires than me because I am the emotional uh, woman of my relationship, and she is uh, manlier in some ways than I am. And it's just the way it goes. <laughs> the Lord is at work in that. And so, but what, think about building a good fire. What do you need to build, good, build a, to build a good fire? You need two things. You need good wood, wood that's uh, got, got density, it's dry enough, lots of it. You need lots of good wood, and then you also need fire. And then Keller says, this is sound doctrine. We need, we need to be gathering wood, good wood, that, we can, that, that can catch fire, but we also need fire. We need fire, something to catch it and, and make it stay on fire. You can tell I don't build fire, just the way I talk about it. Um, <laughs> So, but I love that because here's what it means. It means some of you need more wood. Like some of you have zeal and passion, amen. But some of you, maybe some some of the practices you do, maybe they need to kind of come under more the wisdom of Scripture and especially the wisdom of Scripture as it's been worked out in the church for thousands of years. Maybe uh, you you have lots of convictions and you have a sensitive conscience, but that conscience hasn't been yet formed and informed by Scripture. Maybe it's been more formed or informed by just what you feel or what you think or what you grew up in. And so you need more wood. You need more good teaching. You need more good books. You need more good theology. Absolutely. But some of us need more fire. Some of us have lots of this. We grew up in this. We have lots of this. Come look at our libraries. We have tons of this. But if we're honest, our relationship with Jesus feels a little bit dead. And we know a lot. We know a lot about God, but do we love God? We know a lot about theology, but does that theology catch our hearts on fire? Some of us need more wood, some of us need more fire. And then three things, how do you know this is happening? How do you know this fire is burning like it should be? I think there are three kind of litmus tests, and I'll close with these. How, how do you know that you're holding these two in tension? Here's number one. There's a sense in which you, you enjoy creation. Like so, upward, so in this passage, Paul talks about enjoying the gifts of creation. That means you're neither escaping the gifts of creation and sort of withdrawing and retreating, neither are you enslaved or entangled in the gifts of creation. You're enjoying creation to the glory of God in ways that are healthy and life-giving to those around you. I love the way Chesterton says it. I can't say it better than him. He says this about enjoying creation. He says, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the concert and the opera, and grace before the play and pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. 
Part of how you know you're holding these two intentions, sound doctrine, the furious love of the living God, is you're enjoying creation. Secondly, you're enjoying all kinds of people. You're not just shutting, you're not just pursuing the people that can give you something. And you're neither being codependent where you overneed people, and you're neither being avo- isolating where you're totally avoiding people. You're pursuing, you're being a good friend to your friends, but you're also constantly making new friends. You're pursuing and engaging all kinds of people, all walks of life. Why? Because God is intimately involved in their lives. You're beginning to see them the way God sees them. The way that we see one another in our sinfulness is we immediately judge. Like, even after this, we're going to, listen, we're going to look at each other's shoes and decide whether or not we can be friends. We're going to be like, no, those shoes don't fit into my, what you should be wearing and what I think. Oh, you have some vans? We're friends. Let's be friends. Or, oh, you have some... Like, we, the way that we think about each other can be so that way, right? And then part of what he's saying is we're learning to enjoy. We're holding these two intention. We're learning to enjoy and engage all kinds of people, all kinds of backgrounds. And this is the last one. We're learning to enjoy God. We're actually enjoying God. We're neither waiting until we feel like it to pursue him devotionally, whatever you want to call it. I know those words have a lot of baggage for some of us. Neither are we living and dying by our feelings, where we're sort of, so we, let, we, we judge our relationship with God and how we feel. We're, we're sort of maturing our, in our ability to pursue him. We're, enjo- we're, we're, we're maturing in our ability to enjoy him. The way I like to think about it is we're reading good books about God, theology. But we're also, I love the way a friend put it one time, he asked me a simple question. He said, are you on speaking terms with God? And I thought, Busted. Holding him attention. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for the ways that you meet us where we are, not where we should be. We thank you for the ways that you give us your word, you show us yourself. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, help us, make us people that can hold these two in tension, we pray. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.